Well, hello, folks. It's Jeremy Kirkland. You're listening to Blamo. Are we good? Are you good? This is a special episode this week. It's a bonus Blamo episode. It's a double B. Is that even a thing? God, that's tacky. I am not a copywriter for a good reason. First off, if you're listening to this when it comes out on a Thursday, this slot is usually reserved for the Patreon preview episodes. So twice a month, every other Thursday, these are episodes that are exclusive to our subscribers who support the show and are members of the Blam Fam. The Blam Fam is, I mean, it's our members community. You get access to our Slack community and you get to hear our exclusive shows. We have a Blamo Presents Die Workwear hosted by Derek Guy and the Triple J Show hosted by Gian Delian, John Moy and myself, and also tons more episodes like this, episodes where we get to get really nitty gritty. Um, so yeah, every other Thursday is always a Blam Fam day, but today, well, first off, it's my birthday. I'm just going to be honest with you. And what better way to celebrate by spending it all with you and giving a little gift to you folks. Don't worry about getting me anything though. I got a new kid. Uh, it's like a person. I got a real person. It happened. It took nine months, but we got him. Uh, and I'm most likely going to eat pizza tonight and watch a Sinbad movie. So whew, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> you don't worry about me. But on this bonus episode, we chat with Cameron Barr of Craft and Tailored. If you're not familiar with Craft and Tailored, they are kind of everything, but they're a watch dealer. Um, he's a vintage watch dealer. He's, you know, he's a, a car collector, a stereo collector, camera. Co- I mean, he's got all the cool things that you and all your friends text about that you're trying to get or that you get to one up the other friends. He's got it. He's great. Um, but we chat about watches. I mean, we, we really get into the weeds in it. And it was a ton of fun. But if you like more episodes like this, where we get nitty gritty, consider joining us on Patreon, where you'll get tons more exclusive episodes like this, uh, the other series, and you get to hang out with the Blam Fam. All right? Okay. So breaking through, happy birthday to me, my gift to all of you. Enough of my spiel. I'm going to shut up so you can listen to me talk to someone else. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, what'd you have for breakfast? I just ate it. It was a... Um... Uh, a peanut butter granola bar. Peanut butter granola bar is that your usual breakfast? No, it's not. <laughs> what's the usual? What's the usual? Cam, L.A. What? What is? What is the breakfast you tell people, and what is the breakfast you actually eat? Are they different or are they the same? Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm asked that question a lot necessarily, <laughs> but um, yeah. I actually don't really eat breakfast. I drink it, and it is in the form of like six lattes before I get to the office. Six? Yeah. Do, do you it's, have it's a like home espresso I, I drink like four cups of coffee a day for sure. Cheese Louise. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's not that bad, I guess, when you think about it. There's but... a lot of you know. It's like there's like the whole milk of the latte. So there's like some good protein and fat there, I think. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like I was going really hard on my local coffee shop. And at one point I went and did the math on what I was spending and it was absurd. I was yeah. like spending an average of like $30 a day on multiple lattes, dog treats. Yeah. Um, chocolate croissants got you gotta sometimes you know indulge yeah no 100 <laughs> percent. so i am even more of a freak and this kind of like stems from like being a watch obsessive and a, an obsessive with other other things mm-hmm. but i got into like becoming like my own little mini barista so i have basically like the rolls royce of espresso machines i don't know, actually it's probably not like a rolls royce it's probably like a bespoke 911 if i wait I is this really is this the brevel like og thing with the little touch screen no no i've got like an ecm synchronica so basically like ecm is like the um it is like the insider's prosumer like at home barista espresso machine. oh shit i'm looking at this right now yeah so Holy I've got moly. two of those. I have one at my house and then I also have one in the office. So I basically have like my own, you know, like coffee shop in my house and in my office. Dual boiler espresso machine, German oh, yeah. designed. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to go with a Lamar Zocco and then I met somebody who um, specializes in like this prosumer coffee stuff. He was actually uh, into watches. Yeah, and yeah. he and I'm like, oh, I've been like dreaming of having a Lamar Zocco in my home and in my office. And he's like, no, 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 you don't want a Lamar Zocco. Like Lamar Zocco is like Ferrari. It's beautiful. They're amazing, but they like break down and there's only like three people on the planet that can service them. You want ECM, which is like a Porsche. You can work on it, but it gives you like that same performance and awesomeness. So um, I ended up getting these e- 
these ECM machines. And now mm-hmm. I'm like doing my own latte art and measuring my extractions and all that kind of stuff. So that really like, I'm, I'm like deep into coffee culture for sure. <laughs> shit. So, um, all the analogies you were making about the coffee also were applied towards cars. What's, what is like your whole thing? Cause I, I feel like for many people in a good way, you're very mysterious. You're like this watch dealer, but you burst out on the scene, but you, the thing is you didn't like burst out like as like this incremental thing. It was very much fully formed. Like you launched, like Crafts and Tailored was a thing. You had inventory, you had gear, you already had knowledge, you already had this stuff. So like trace me pre Crafts and Tailored Cameron. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I, I never thought I would be doing this. I was a watch nerd. So I was in the technology business and we, you and I were just talking about food. But I think what's mm-hmm. funny is like my... I was a C-level executive within a tech company, and I also worked with other C-level executives. And so my day normally revolved around food, and I'm not like a big food guy at all. So I'd have a breakfast meeting, a lunch meeting, or a dinner meeting, and it was was always like about like entertainment. That's like how you would get the C-suite meeting. You're like, we're going to go to this five-star restaurant. Do you want to like take a meeting with me so I can sell you a bunch of shit? So (laughs) what ended up happening uh, was I was kind of always like the renegade and the outsider in like the corporate C-suite world. Like my suits were always bespoke. Um, my shoes were always bench made. I never bought anything like off the rack, you know, and th- my pure group was like, oh, I, you know, luxury and coolness is a McLaren or this brand new Lambo or this new like yellow gold yacht master. And for me, I was like, well, anybody with enough money can go buy that stuff. I don't, I don't want to floss and flex in a way that is like really publicly noticeable. I want to get into stuff that is, you know, kind of, kind of like, if you know, you know, right. Okay. And so that's kind of where my obsession with like detail and all that kind of started. It was kind of like my fuck you to the man because I hated working in the corporate space. I hated kind of the man, so to speak, because Mm -hmm. it was just, there was no like substance. There was no genuineness in any of that kind of stuff. It was all of, it was just kind of just a flex. And mm-hmm. like, you can't buy style and taste, right? Like style and taste doesn't equate to like a, a monetary number ever. Mm-hmm. So in any case, um, that's kind of how I got into watches. I wanted watches and things like that as an accessory that were kind of under the radar, um, that were on the outside that, right. you know, wasn't even about the money. It was about, you know, maybe it was like a cool vintage Seiko or something like that, but it, but it had something that like, you know, maybe it was like the only watch in that room, in that state, in that part of the country that I had. And that to me was like real tangible exclusivity. So like the folks that you were say, okay, so you're, you're out at dinner. This is pre pre craft and tailored. Yep. You're, you're at the tech dinner. Is this basically just a lot of Submariners? It was a lot of, yeah, it was like a lot of ceramic subs. It was a lot of, you know, and back then this was probably say in, in God, this is like seven years ago, eight years ago at Mm -hmm. this point, you could still get that stuff. So a lot of it was like, you know, it was like, you know, it wasn't even like good Brioni suits. It was like, it, it was like, oh yeah. What, what was the suits you were making? Who, who was making your suits? There's a, a gentleman who, uh, he still makes my suits. His name uh, is Todd and he's just a clothier who, you know, kind of started off at, um, you know, kind of like a custom men's clothier. And then he went independent. And mm-hmm. so we were pulling like fabric off of like old dead stock bolts of fabric from like Seville Row. And I was wearing like these like really crazy suits, not loud, but like, you know, suits with like dead stock fabrics with functioning buttonholes with, you know, like roped sleeves with pick stitch lapels and doing things that were kind of like interesting and cool that like I knew about, but nobody else knew about. And that kind of translated into watches. So um, going back to how I got into becoming a watch dealer is I wanted something that was like really cool and something that had like substance. And this jeweler that I was working with, that was a kind of a friend, I said, hey, next time something old and vintage and Rolex comes in the door, let me know. And so he calls me one day and he's like, Hey, I don't know if you're going to be into this, but there's this old guy who's selling this, this Submariner. And the Submariner was a reference 5513. It was from 1967. It's a non-chronometer sub. Yep. So it's a two liner. Um, and the watch was in like a really kind of like despair, like distressed state. It needed work. Uh It was missing the crown. It was missing a bezel. And so I ended up like offering 
like $750 for this watch, right? Even parts back then, that was like a screaming deal. The parts on yeah, that watch yeah, yeah. alone now are like probably eight or $9,000, right? right? And so what I had to do is I had to like work with the community to figure out how to service the watch, how to find the, the exact crown for, you know, that year in 1967, I had to find a bezel insert. And what happened is I kind of like slipped down this like this slope into this like deep dark hole of learning why Rolex used this specific crown during this year, why they used this insert, why is it a Mark III versus a Mark IV? Why is the luminous compound this versus that? Right. And so like through kind of this this my first watch, which was a sub, um, I had to kind of like restore it. And as a result of like finding the components and the and the parts for this watch, I just became obsessed with like you know, the technical history of these things and the mechanical, you know, development of these things. And so when I was on the road, I would have like these various meetings where, you know, I was. So you're, you're still working for the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what I would do is like, I would have these gaps of time in my schedule where it'd be like, all right, I had my breakfast meeting. My next me meeting isn't until like eight and I'm in the middle of Texas. So I'm going to go to every pawn shop and like try to find like these cool little watches. And I, and I started to amass this collection of watches and I would find these great deals. I'd be like in the middle of nowhere and I'd be like, oh, here's a date just for $500. Here's a sub what? for $1,000. And wait, I felt, wait, 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 what? Why are these, this, was this just kind of the going rate for the price at the time? I don't, I don't even remember when subs and date just were that cheap. Yeah. What's, what's wild is I'm kind of the new kid on the block in terms of, I would say like the recognized vintage dealers in in the world and sure and not tuning my own horn um that's just kind of what has happened as a result of having done this for the past i guess now going on seven years professionally so um when i first got into the business like officially date justs were like two thousand dollars subs <laughs> like a really nice five five one three was sixty five hundred dollars you know and back then that was like that wasn't cheap that wasn't expensive sure. that's just what the price was so over the past seven you know to ten years we've seen explosive growth within the within the vintage watch market and also we're seeing people you know um get into the details like oh this is a meters first sub versus a feet first sub oh this is a gilt dial versus a matte dial or this is a mark one versus a mark two versus a you know and back then i was nerding out on that stuff i was looking for all the little sub variants and like all the little yeah. Yeah. little things but a lot of people they just they're like hey this is a matte dial submariner you know, and it could be a meters first, or it could be a feet first, or it could be a maxi dial or whatever. You Where know, are you learning this stuff? Because I think like that's, that's the thing that, you know, a lot of people, whether they're in, whether they are in the industry brand new or for a very long time, all the stuff you're talking about with Rolex. And I say this for people who don't know, Rolex does not publish like, Hey, here's our history. Here's every different variation. And here's when it was made. And here's when, you know, like, so like, where are you finding this and, and learning it? You know, back then it was a lot of the internet. There was a lot of like vintage Rolex forms. Okay. Um, right. Like network 54? Network 54. It was right. dealing with other guys. It was, uh, you know, other dealers, other collectors. And the thing that's really cool is like the community in itself is, it was at least back then very mm -hmm. welcoming to people that wanted to learn about it or to compare and people, you know, there was like these, like these discussions that were happening to kind of uncover and to document the history of Rolex and other vintage watches like Omega Speedmasters or Patek Philippe or Vacheron Constantine or whatever. So yeah, the yeah. community back then I think was much more open than it is now. And a lot of it was in books. So I just started like grabbing every single book I could find. Well, like the Mondani stuff or? Yeah, like Georgia Mondani is actually now a, a, a personal friend of mine. But back then I was reading like all the Mondani books and I was looking at old auction catalogs. I was buying auction catalogs off of like the internet, you know? That's a really good idea. Yeah, I, I have catalogs. a collection of of auction catalogs that like Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips that like dates back eight, nine years. And I'm like trying to find, you know, like I'm, I'm almost like collecting auction catalogs now, like somebody with baseball cards. So That's I'm going out to try to find those, those catalogs to go, Oh, this watch auctioned in 2008 for this much. And now it's in front of me at, at this. And, you know, and it's also really good because a lot of what we do is authentication. Like we authenticate watches. We're looking for changes. Um, you right. know, did the bezel change? Was the dial screwed with? Like, so you can kind of now, as a result of the internet and these these kind of archives, um, you know, you can kind of track a watch's physical history, and that helps when you're authenticating a watch or or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, so, so you're getting into watches, you're starting to buy some of this stuff and, and you're, you're basically learning from old catalogs and Mondani books, which by the way, I think is the only way and place to learn any of that. I mean, especially at the time with like message boards and stuff. I mean, that was just kind of how you learn, but it was also in a good way. I think it was like kind of where people like all learn together through people's mistakes. Like, I remember a guy had gotten a watch on one of the Rolex forums, and he was like, it's this. It's a blank and blank. And people were like, that dial right. was never made with that watch. And it was just like, everybody's like devastated at the same time. Like, did that happen with you at all? Like, did you buy some of the wrong things? You know, things? I, I, it was funny. I was on, uh, I was doing like a, a, a Q&A the other day, and that's that's a question that comes up a lot. And fortunately for yeah. me, I, I just like pour myself into research. I pour myself into looking at comparables and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I haven't really made any like major mistakes. Um, you know, I've taken risks on things that didn't end up being sure. what they ultimately need to be. Like, for example, like sometimes I'm looking at a, a photograph and, you know, very respectfully speaking, it's like an 85 year old man on the other end who's using like a Nokia or like a Motorola razor or whatever <laughs> okay. to like take photos of this watch. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, you might as well be taking pictures of this watch with a potato because like, I can't really even like, you know, I'm like, can you show me the serial number? And the guy's like, how do I take the bracelet off? You know, and it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm in those situations less frequently now, but but back then that, that was kind of the <laughs> jam. And um, you know, that's I think going back to your point, the community, um, there there was like a lot of welcome, kind of like, hey, I found this, I need some help. And then kind of the 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 yeah. community would chime in. There wasn't like this this thing that was like happening where people were like, Oh, look at that idiot who bought like a like a, a, you know, a redone dial or, or whatever. And I think back then too, right. there wasn't as much um, like to gain. I've, I've seen that kind of in other auxiliary markets as well, like within like the, the vintage automotive market where, you know, people weren't like manipulating stuff to, 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 to gain because it was less recognized. The, the market I would say back then was, was much more pure and honest. And people just didn't give a shit about right. it as much. They were like, yeah, it's a vintage watch. It's an old watch. There were guys like me that were obsessing over like, you know, the, the serifs and the font and the, the glossiness of the dial and the serial number and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. I think that's the thing too. Cause I mean, uh, our like mutual buddy, Eric, Wynn has talked about how like the explosion in altering and I, you had talked about this too. And when, when we had lunch the other day, we're like, it's not so much that the watches are fake. I'm air yep. quoting that word. It's that like some of these watches, uh, I'm just going to pull an example out of the air where it's like, okay, uh, the watch is real, but the Tiffany stamp totally. is not. You know what I mean? And it's in some of those things, especially with like Rolex, you can't track the exact, you know, issue papers of this. And Rolex is like, oh, yes, we made that cereal with the Tiffany stamp. It was you know, some of those things were done locally, some of those. And so like, that's been a newer thing that I think a lot of people are seeing now where it's like, yeah, the watch is real, the age is correct, all this stuff, but the, I'm making this up, like the, the stamp is incorrect or the, the, yeah, the hands I are wrong or something. I actually had an interesting yeah. situation happen yesterday and I'm on the road a lot, you know, meeting with clients and inspecting watches and, and literally chasing this stuff around the world. But I was, I was here in LA, I was at our headquarters and we're like jewelry district adjacent. So, you know, New York has 47th street, okay. which is huge. We also kind of have our own version of 47th street here in LA. It's, it's Hill street. And mm -hmm. it's, it's basically like not even a quarter of the size of like what is in, in, in New York, right. For diamonds and gold and what, and so we're like the vintage go-to here in LA. Like if something old comes in, like we get the call, we get the WhatsApp, we get the text, whatever. So this, right. what's that? <laughs> yes. So, I said, right. Um, uh, we, I get a, a WhatsApp message from a dealer that specializes kind of just in like everything. He's more of a jeweler, but does watch stuff. And this guy's offering him um, like a 70s era Rolex Oyster Perpetual date. The reference was 5100. And it had like this really rare Arabic dial. So the numbers around the dial were in Arabic and it had an Arabic um, date wheel as well. And so um, okay. one had just auctioned, I think in November for like uh, 27,000 CHF. And um, a pretty important watch. So 
I, I, the watch looked a little bit weird. And again, I'm getting like these kind of like grainy crap iPhone photos. So I was like, all right, I'm local. It'll take me 10 minutes to walk over. So I ended up inspecting the watch yesterday. And to your point, the watch was genuine. Um, the case, the movement, the serial number, the, the date wheel, you know, everything was there, but somebody at some point had refinished the dial. So the plots on the dial, the Arabic Ooh. numbers on the dial, the cornet, all of that was original, but somebody had like basically wiped out the dial and then refinished it. Um, so like the markers on the minute track, the little ticks on the out- outside of the of the the numbers, those were off. The Rolex printing was off. So that was a watch that ended up being a pass for us because um, the dial had been been refinished, but the dial was original. It just again, it would be like taking like a Picasso and then like being like, uh, it's got some patina. Let's wipe that off and then repaint this Picasso, which <laughs> of course like devalues the the watch, kind of rendering it as on. How does that conversation go? Because I imagine there's a lot of ego in the room and you kind of have to you know you're basically thumbs up or thumbs down caesar moment here like what is is that get it does yeah (laughs) i it's something that i've really learned to to refine and our friend eric wind i actually took a page out of his book where he basically like says and i hope eric doesn't get mad at me for saying this but it's like such a funny thing and i we laugh about it but He'll go, well, sadly, you know, the uh, the dial has been refinished, right? And and he kind of says like, like, oh, well, sadly, this isn't for me, you know? And it kind of mm-hmm. puts like the, the like, hey, it just is what it is versus me being the guy where, you know, in my in my younger dealing career, I'd be like, okay, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is why it's not going to sell. And, and so for me now, what I kind of do is just remove myself and I'm just saying, hey, as a subject matter expert, like, this is my opinion. And, you know, sadly, it's, it's, you know, it's been refinished. So this isn't, you know, but there are those moments where, <laughs> oh, like, <man. laughs> I mean, there's been so many weird stories where, like, I've had, um, like, somebody that's going through a divorce, and they're wanting to sell watches, Uh-oh. and then they bring in stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, your husband really didn't get you, you know, a sub, this isn't legit, <gasps> you know, and there's been like, instances like that, where, you know, you kind of have to be the bearer <laughs> oh, of bad shit. news. And Sorry, this was included in the divorce, but he was so inclined to give it to you because you may want to check your tennis bracelet as well. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a that's a real drag. But I mean, it's good to to have that. I mean, it's uh, obviously like telling the truth is good. It's just that when it's that person is totally ignorant to it. Or maybe not, right? Yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, and there's that saying, it's like, ignorance is bliss, right? Like, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> sometimes I just know so much and I've accumul- accumulated this knowledge and it, I just sometimes wish I could go back and just go like, you know, oh man, this is this is just cool. I like this because of this without going like, okay, let me, let me verify that the serial number is in the correct production range for this and that. And let me look at the text and let me hit it with ultraviolet to inspect the luminous material and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, yeah. there, there, there's a, it's a bittersweet thing. I think for me, you, you know, what ended up happening is I amassed this collection of watches and then Wall Street and being in big tech kind of just burnt me out. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But as a result of me getting involved in the community, I had kind of developed some friends and some people that, you know, I was kind of watch trading with. And then I kind of started to feel guilty because I had amassed a collection of watches. Um, and I, I, I can only wear so much, you know, like there, it's like, do, do I really need, you know, 10 5513s in a collection when I'm only really wearing one? Uh-oh, bless right? me here. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, it's very refreshing to hear you say that, by the way, because I have a bunch of friends, including myself, where, I mean, I don't have a ton of watches, but I have things that I'm like, I totally need that. And then you realize that like, but do you, like, do you need it? Or are you just like, now you're starting to hoard. You know, like what? What is that? How how do you? Well, deal I mean, with for that? me now, I can be, I I can legitimize my hoarding because, like, I'm like, oh well, this is just an inventory, right? So it's like, yeah, this yeah. this is for sale. That's you know, true. and the funny thing is, like, I have like it's um it's funny because like I kind of have like these little like mini romances with um with these watches sometimes, and sometimes like the romance is like so intense that I'm like very. I'm like, I don't want to let something go. So I like, I won't move on my price or whatever it is. Right. Cause like, I love the watch so much. And I think the thing that, um, I share with a very select few other dealers is that I'm also a collector myself. So, you know, there will be things that come in where I'm, 
you know, there are watches that I'm looking for. Like there, there are watches out there that I'm like chasing for myself and not everything Mm -hmm. is for sale. The thing that has been challenging, I would say in the past, you know, three to four years, especially is that, um, if I'm meeting with a client to deliver a watch or to advise on a collection or, you know, kind of help them navigate the collecting process. Sometimes I can't wear my own watches because people are like, well, what are you wearing and why are you wearing it? You know, and then I've, I've like had to have that thing where I'm like, oh, this isn't for sale. You know, it's, it's actually my personal watch. And then they're like, like well, what? Like the Paul Newman on your wrist right now? Like oh, I just, I just caught wind of that. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. This one is for sale, but I'm, I'm having a romance with it for sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Has there ever been a situation where like, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but like someone has something that's crazy and they're they're unaware of the value and where like you know i remember maybe it's not even true but like someone like went up to this person and they were like hey i have this watch um it was a dealer that we know and the watch that they had was crazy rare and what they wanted for it was like a 16th of what it was actually worth and the dealer was like actually it's worth this and i'll give you that like has that happened um you know through and what's kind of crazy is that, again, kind of being the younger dealer uh, and one of the new kids on the block. And I say that after having been in the business for now, you know, eight years professionally, I've been collecting probably for like 12 to 14 years. Um, the thing that is interesting is like, you know, I'm still always on the hunt. Like I love hunting watches. And yesterday, even going into, mm-hmm. you know, kind of onto the street, so to speak, and looking at watches, like I, I couldn't help myself, but to like go just look through the cases. Cause you just never know what you're going to find. It's like, it's an addiction right. for sure. But, but I think, you know, for me, it's easier to bring people in and say, Hey, listen, you know, this is worth this. And that honesty and that kind of transparency has perpetuated additional business for us and uh, an additional connection. Oh, that's good. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been in that situation where, you know, you're looking at an estate piece and they have no idea what it's worth. And then you kind of educate them. And then it really creates a, a, a tight bond with, um, you know, that customer, that contact, which then kind of perpetuates itself to other people. Um, and I think that that's the, the great thing that, that is a result of being in the internet and being present on social media and that kind of stuff is that when you take care of people, you know, word gets around just as if like you were to, you know, if you were to fuck somebody over, word would also get around. Right. And so it's right. Yeah. It really is small, especially now, you know, with the internet, the negative side to that is you have like a lot of like couch quarterbacks, I guess is the, is the term for that. Right. Like the guys that are like trying to throw like the long pass from their couch and they're not actually in the game and on the field. So you have these kind of like, you you know, keyboard warrior experts that are like, well, I don't know if that existed. I don't know. And then I'm like, guy, I've, I've looked at like 5,000 of these. I'm telling you based on my experience that this, this is a known example or, or whatever. And so there's that kind of side to the, to the, to the the internet and to this communication where you have a lot of people that are experts, but they haven't had a lot of hands-on experience with the subject matter. And their experience, if you really peel back the layers of the onion, is very limited. And they're just kind of like providing this internet-based opinion, which can sometimes do the opposite of what I what I think is is positive. Yeah. I I mean that that's definitely something that, you know, like the hood inky comment section, which I feel so bad for the folks there. Cause some of the stuff I read, I'm like, what why why are we getting personal yeah. all of a sudden where somebody's reflecting on somebody's personal life or something that's happened and or, you know, and it's like you don't even have to like you don't have to be the reply guy or like the hot take of of whether or not yeah. that watch was true or existed. I mean, it's it's a I've shit learned show. to kind of also just kind of keep my opinions to myself in some cases too, especially when you're dealing with like a a, a real high visibility thing, you know. Um, so I met this really interesting guy, and his name is Brian Ray, and he's the guitar player for Paul McCartney, and he's like this really amazing um guitar player. He was like he he was on well, yeah clearly. I mean, he's like the dude he's playing with the Beatles and uh <laughs> this really cool dude and I, he's not even a watch collector he has one watch and it's a it's a Cartier Roadster oh and that's a cool we met and we were talking about vintage guitars and just kind of like collecting yeah. and he collects like vintage guitars and cars and all this kind of stuff and we weren't really talking about collecting watches at all. And but the vintage guitar world and the vintage car world and the architecture world and the fashion world, they all kind of like intermingle, as you know. And so yeah. we were, you know, talking about uh, vintage watches. And he's like, you know, I love this, this, this Cartier, like it's a steel Cartier Roadster. But, you know, there's this guy that like 
was like, well, you know, Brian, that's a real shit watch. You should, you should get something that's like really whatever. And, and he, and he, he like, he's like my, you know, my, my niece just told me, she's like, you know, don't, don't yuck somebody else's yum. Right. And that's the thing that I think is so interesting about the watch world. And I really resonated mm-hmm. with that. It's like, don't yuck somebody's yum. Like, you know, maybe you're into like quartz watches, you know, maybe you're into Squatch watches. Maybe you have a different opinion. Maybe you have a different taste. I think right. for me with my opinions uh, and what it is that I'm, you know, personally into from a taste perspective, I, there, it's all ice cream. You know, you like pistachio. I like chocolate. You like you, whatever, you know? And I think that that is really for me where like a lot of the learning still takes place and a lot of like the perspective of, um, you know, growth for me, there's things that I never thought I would be into that I'm now like absolutely obsessed with within the watch world. And I, you know, I like, uh, I mean, I, I like, a, a like Vacheron Constantine. Like I think Vacheron okay. is, you know, like their their watches out of the 60s and the 70s there's so much cool stuff that nobody is considering you know 18 karat gold like you know calatrava style time only watches that have these beautiful and ornate dials um their casework and their and their movement finishing is comparable to patek philippe in my opinion um same thing with cartier i've gotten into cartier over like the past like three or four years where i never thought i'd wear like a gold Mm -hmm. tank now I I love, you know, tanks and that kind of stuff. So um, it's not just sports watches for me. It's not just Paul Newman's. I have a, a, a definite passion for yeah. those. But, you know, again, it's through kind of meeting with this community and dealing with other collectors and looking at a, a wide kind of broad uh, element of subject matter that allows my taste to kind of constantly be evolving and changing. And and that's how I still get excited about this. Right. Stuff. Yeah. One of the things that like caught me by surprise when, you know, I had met you and we were talking about Crafts and Taylor and your brand and stuff is for a lot of watch companies and watch, you know, dealers per se, the focus is always solely on watches, right? But like going on Crafts and Taylor, there's like, there's car stuff, there's like guitars, there's art, there's like, you know, walk me through why you were kind of like looking at this as like an entire world versus a singular channel. Man, Kirkland, you really know what you're doing over there. That's a that's a pivot if I've ever what, seen no, one. I'm, you're I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I hope it's not unwelcome. <laughs> no, dude, it's okay. awesome. Like, I, it, you really like... Um, I'm I'm also a fan of your of your pod, and I think the the guests that you have, and not to just blow smoke up your skirt, I think like the content that you're producing is kind of like I resonate with that because to your point, craft and tailored is more than just watches, and that's kind of like our funny tagline. But what ended up happening is like you're right, a lot of dealers are just solely focused on like watch, watch, yeah. watch, 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 and the only other person that really kind of blended, I think, watches and the art and the lifestyle and all that other stuff that surrounded them was Houdinki. And so I also resonated with that. And, you know, I think for us, I found myself in these positions where I was sitting down with these like really awesome, influential people that were subject matter experts in other auxiliary Mm -hmm. fields, whether it be automotive or, you know, fashion or design. And if I really peel back the layers of that onion, I started to think about why I was into watches. Well, I think it's it's like my espresso machine. I'm into like, you know, the the way that, you know, the E61 brew group works in this machine and that it has braided stainless steel, you know, um, you know, uh, tubing instead of like copper right. or why like Aerosarin made, you know, this design versus that sign where Charles and Ray Ames did this kind of stuff. And then I I was like, oh man, I'm into all these other things. Like, why don't we use this thing that I that I do for a living as a as a jump off point and talk about the kind of crossover between fashion and architecture and art. And and instead of kind of just being like, oh, that was a cool conversation, go like, well, wait a minute. Let's like create some content around that. Let's like explore that. Let's celebrate that. I think one of the one of the articles that you had probably seen was like our interview with Johan Lamb from mm-hmm. 316. And I love 316's attention to detail, the fabrics that they use, the stitching, the inspiration behind their items. It also just so happens that Johan um is also right, into right. watches. So it, it's it's been really cool. That that is definitely a part of our brand and that's something that we're definitely leaning into. Um we did an interview with um, Devin Turnbull from uh, Ohas. So Devin came out of the lifestyle world and is into hi-fi audio and is like basically a 
a, a wizard when it comes to like hi-fi and audio. I also love records. I also love the history of hi-fi and audio. And so we interviewed Devin and we kind of talked about, you know, the similarities between watches and sound design and collecting, you know, old Altec speakers from, you know, the forties and the fifties and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, you, you, you definitely, um, called me out on that, which is something that's cool, which is, we are definitely exploring kind of the auxiliary markets and leaning into the other things. And as a brand, we're starting to do more collaborations that are outside of watches. Does that mean that we're going to stop selling watches or stop, you know, uh, doing that? No, not at all. But are we going to create content and lean into that and kind of celebrate that for sure? And I think that's where the growth of our brand ultimately lies yeah. is in this other kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I totally hear you. I mean, because that's when you look at watch companies now or watch brands or dealers like that, now they're kind of like, oh, shit, like, um, I need to be able to sell all the other things that are in the picture of the watch that I took, right? Like, you know, every, right. everyone's got the watch like next to an Eames or next to, you know, it's on the, the Macintosh amp or something. And it's like being able to be like, oh, P.S., you can also buy that here. I mean, I think right. is, is, you know, is huge. That being said, you know, as we were saying, do you ever see yourself getting into like maybe more clothes stuff? like denim or I mean, because you, you wear it and you have it, you know, but yeah. And I think the funny thing is like people uh, I, I've had to kind of be a little bit careful and not for the sake of me not wanting to like bite off more than I can chew. But like I'm a, vi I'm, a I'm a Porsche collector. I'm into clothing. I'm into denim. I'm into hi-fi and all that kind of stuff. And I think the plan for us is going to be to kind of talk about what we're into or what I'm into and then kind of use that as a as platform to talk more about it and to kind of promote it. But maybe not necessarily specialize in it as much as say the other industry leading expert would and that's kind of what we've done with almost like like johan from 316 i think i'd love to do like a like a cool little collaboration with them but ultimately like point people to those little, right, little areas right. and kind of in the truest sense maybe inspire people to to think about other stuff but you know to specialize in just like are we going to open up a hi-fi shop and also start selling vintage porsches no and i get asked a lot like hey will you help me will you help me buy and sell a porsche or buy and sell this and i'm like hey totally you know appreciate that but that's just not right. what we do we do this but these are the people that you're going to want to talk to and these guys are kind of like vetted by let's say like the craft and tailored you know family so right so but yeah i think we'll do some collabs and that kind of stuff for sure and we'll definitely get into more like like little fun like lifestyle products and and things like that yeah for sure what are your thoughts on the fact that like it feels that a lot of watch companies now aren't it's not that they do new releases anymore that just have to stand on its own it feels like many watch companies their new release involves a collab to where it's like you know and i don't say this to call brands out but it's like it's somewhat strange to me that it's almost that like just everything now whether it's clothes but it definitely feels like that in watches are a collab Oh, we're we're doing this this limited edition with this, and it's like, is it what is a limited edition in in twenty twenty two? A general release, like yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, um, Eric from uh, Undefeated just did a collab with uh, Mosier, which I think is kind of interesting, and it is a true limited collab, and it's like a really interesting kind of like streetwear skate kind of like you know high fashion meeting like hot high horology and i think that that collab is kind of cool i like both brands um and i think that 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 is kind of a an interesting thing is is mosier gonna do more of that maybe and i think that that in essence could kind of degrade the limited editionness of some stuff mm -hmm. i think we had that really happen with like panerai for example <laughs> panerai was like this really cool yeah. heritage historic brand and then it's like every panerai you see on the market it's like oh it's the limited edition you know olympics version it's the limited edition it was thursday you know march you know 22nd of you know 2011 version oh it's the limited and, and then like the exclusiveness just gets like real watered yeah. down. And then you're like, well, everything's a limited edition. I think, um, I think that, that it can be done in a tasteful way, but I also think that there are people that are just like reaching for the collab and there's not true like substance behind what that is. So I, I think to your point, um, I definitely love like the little limited edition collabs that some of these, these brands are doing, but also I think it just depends on how it's executed. And I think that that is ultimately going to either produce something that is, is sustainable and actually truly collectible or something that's just hyped out. And that's also something that I deal uh, a lot with in my own head is, is, you know, like 
is this truly collectible? Is this truly exclusive? Mm. Or is this just part of the hype machine? And I'm not really a big fan of just the hype machine. If that's me shooting myself in the in my own foot, fine. But like, I'm just not real, a real big hype, hype guy. Yeah, like, I, I think, you know, with so many limited editions, there are still great things that come out, you know, but th- how, like we were talking about, like how saturated limited editions can be, you know, I, I sometimes like, okay, is this the asshole cynic Jeremy that's like coming out? Or is this like, you know, what what is a way, you know, where everything can be nice? Like, well, 20 years from now, will we look back at like, you know, the the teens and the, the 2020s as like the over limited editions? I, I don't know. I mean, anyway, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think we're in a really weird crossroads. And I think that you have a generation that has come up within the hype machine mm-hmm. that has bought like the crazy expensive t-shirt that is now like trading for like nothing on on grailed or whatever yeah yeah i think that the thing that i love about vintage watches is you know regardless of the price point you can actually find and maintain tangible exclusivity and things that are actually like substantial you know you look at like a seiko from the 60s like a willard for example yeah right like that's a cool watch. That's an icon. It it has, you know, technical development. It has history, has all those things. And it's not even really that expensive. Same same way as if you look at like a Daytona or, or something like that, there's an element of, of that being an icon in itself, which to me makes me feel that I have something that is that is real and substantial versus like, you know, like a, a random dial with a random text on it or something that has like, some ridiculous colorway and it's a limited edition but it's like the fifth limited edition of the brand right and I, i'm kind of with you there i'm not again i'm not really a hype guy and and maybe i'm i think i have a responsibility in a way to kind of educate people as to what the what something that is sustainable and substantial in that world is regardless of the price point yeah and i think we do that by to your point um storytelling and explaining the history and you know if if you're buying something you're not just buying this for the logo or the brand or whatever you're buying the history the technical development you know like all those things and that to me is what is sustainable and also substantial in terms of the item itself right do you think there'll be you know is is there a watch now that will look back that would be like the the captain willard or whatever in the sense that like that watch was not a intentional collaboration it was basically just worn in apocalypse now so you know mm-hmm. the, the seiko turtle that was worn in apocalypse now um that then people you know that nickname became from that association that that was completely unintentional do you think that there's anything I, that's happening now that's totally unintentional i have a funny story for okay you. this um, is the place <laughs> so my dentist um who is also a watch collector who i became friends with as a result of him being a, a like a watch collector yeah, yeah. and i've sold him some really amazing pieces is kind of a celebrity old school dentist in la and he works on martin sheen's teeth uh, <laughs> so martin comes in one day and he's like wearing a willard because he knows martin's coming in he's like look i'm wearing my captain willard martin sheen has like no idea he's like what are you talking <laughs> and he's like you don't know and he's like dude you have a watch that has like the nickname of your character in apocalypse now and he's like i had no idea like that this was a that this is like a thing and then like you know of course he like pulls it up on his phone he's like look and he's like he's like blown away that he has like this watch that is associated with his character in this film so it it was funny because he told me that story and i just thought it was so cool that you know like this this guy who plays this iconic character who's obviously like a major actor yeah uh, and kind of an icon in himself like has no idea that he has like a a right like so do you think there's anything that's happening now that we'll look back and say? I mean, yeah, I think there's I think there's some things. I mean, you know, a lot of like the really interesting APs with complications, I think that those are true limited edition production pieces, oh, yeah. which, you know, that's like art meeting, technical, like excellence meeting, iconic brand. So I think that that stuff could definitely be something that is kind of like the Paul Newman uh, of our generation. The thing that I think is different now than it was back in the day is that I don't think we're producing anything now that is ultimately going to become an icon as a result of it needing to meet form, meeting function, meeting 
design. Mm. And what I mean by that is like, if you look at the turtle, for example, you know, the reason that it's, you know, named, um, you know, the turtles because the crown is kind of offset yeah. and the, the crown is kind of like in like the, the four o'clock position yeah, of, and the case the, is all of, of the case yeah. and the case kind of looks like a turtle shell or whatever. Right. And all of that stuff is a, is a result of like Seiko as a brand trying to advance the, the development of this dive launch. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we're in a position today where brands and or people are developing something based on form meeting function meeting a design element. Mm. I think that that time ultimately for us is kind of really past. It's like, how do you, how do you recreate an icon? And I think that that's the thing that the brands are, are really struggling with, whether it be watches or automotive or whatever. I don't know if, and, and I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm just giving you, cause no, I thought a lot I, about you this. Are. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, how does Porsche recreate the 911? You know, like right. they have to sell more units. They're a manufacturer. Like you, you can't really, you can't do anything to the 911 that is going to like wildly like turn it into, it, it already is an icon. Right. Um, I think the same thing with Rolex. It's like, look at their, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Rolex and, and maybe I'm like doing myself a disservice by saying this, but like, look what Rolex is doing with, um, you know, their current production. And this is mind boggling. People are like, oh, this is going to be limited edition. This is going to be collectible. It's like, okay, the Oyster Perpetual with, you know, like the colored dial. Mm-hmm. People don't really look at that for what it is. It's the easiest watch for Rolex to produce. Mm-hmm. It comes in every size that will work for any human, right? <laughs> It's the least complicated movement. Right. And to change the color on a dial and call it limited edition is like the easiest thing for a brand to do. So like for them to do that, the, the, people are like, oh, this is groundbreaking. This is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it's the same case about? for like, like a I- date just and stuff too. So it's, it's not, yeah, you're, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it, this movement isn't a, a, they're the lowest end rolex that you can buy i'm not i'm not talking crap on it it's prestige or it's mean yeah but it's like people are like losing their shit over this and i'm like am i like the only idiot here that thinks that this is a load of shit like what what do you mean like this isn't they literally just changed the color of the dial you know, and right. there's no like technical excellence. This isn't an icon. Same thing with like, you know, the, the new GMT that they, that they released. I, I I'm, oh, I'm the, like the Destro, I'm, the left hand, the Destro. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, you guys didn't even change the position of the date window. That's true. You know, <laughs> it, you literally just took the watch, flipped it upside down, redid the logo, moved the six o'clock marker to the 12 o'clock and the 12 o'clock to the six and just printed everything upside down. And people are freaking out about this. And I'm like, this is crap. <laughs> this to me says the brand literally cannot become an innovator and is struggling with their own identity because they have created an icon. And I think that that's a really hard position for a lot of like these manufacturers to be in that have created icons. And instead of looking back at their history and their heritage and just doing like really cool things that accent the originals, they're like doing like these wild things that I don't think are going to be ultimately sustainable. Yeah, I mean, because thinking about it now, I guess a brand doesn't make an icon, right? Like an icon is made by somebody else through the brand. Like like the Paul Newman, he wasn't, that was not a special watch. I mean, they call it the exotic dial, but like, you know, whatever. It, it, It was not, it was, it was iconic by the people who, used it, wore it, whatever. So like Paul Newman made it, you know, uh, subs by by divers, you know, all, all these other things. So it's just like, yeah, what is it? And maybe it's because we're so reliant on our phones, you know, a watch is in some ways has kind of relegated itself to jewelry versus a tool, even though we will buy them as like, oh, but this, I could dive a thousand feet, you know, or a thousand meters underwater. It's like, yeah, but you're not. I mean, it's like, but I could. And I, now I have right. it and now I can. <laughs> right. You're, you're like, I'm going to get, you know, a, a Rolex, uh, you know, sea dweller, James Cameron, because like, I'm for sure going to dive. <laughs> I'm going to the Marriott and, Trench. And I'm like, <laughs> you're literally wearing a Maytag fridge on your wrist. Right. And like, you're, you're, are you, are you even going to go snorkeling in this watch? You know, I, I think that, that there is a, an element of like vibe and coolness around the watch being able to technically 
do that, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Like, I think that that from a technical perspective to create a watch that, that w- can withstand those pressures and do the, the collaboration oh, with James Cameron, I, th- I think that's amazing. But like to offer that as a production model to like the the general public, I, I, I think is is kind of ridiculous. And I think to your point, it's like, how do you recreate a, an icon? What's what's wild and what's interesting is that we've actually been working with a few heritage brands um, and not a lot of people know about this and we can talk about it on the, on the pod. I can't name drop yet, but we've actually been working with some brands that have actually tapped on us to help them kind of rediscover their heritage. And it, you would think that that would be something that would be like so easy for a brand to do. But I think just through time, like the creative people and the technical people have just kind of like moved through the brand where they're mm. like, we have this amazing history and heritage, but we're like producing like these total garbage things, whether it be clothing or in our case, watches or whatever. And they're like, hey, can you help us kind of rediscover our history? And as a vintage watch collector, what would you want to see in the modern variation of this? How can we pull elements of our past while leveraging you know, technical excellence through modern manufacturing and, and kind of just the modern era to create something that, that, you know, is maybe an, uh, an homage to the past while leveraging these other things. And that's been a really fun thing to create and kind of do. And, and I feel honored to be tapped on the, on the shoulder by some of these brands to, to be doing that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing that. And I think that that's also an element of craft and tailored that not a lot of people know about, but through this appreciation of history and, and, you know, having become uh, an expert in the field of horology and, and, and studying it and learning it over and over and over again, um, we're now acting kind of as a consultant for some of these brands to, um, help them kind of like rediscover themselves yeah. through the past, which I think is really cool. I hope your some of your advice consisted of uh, the phrase, make it smaller. Um, uh, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, we were tapped on the on the shoulder by a, by a company and I'm like, first first order of business, make it smaller. stop making everything in 42 millimeters. <laughs> just stop. Like nobody, like it's just too, it's too large, you know? So we've, we've done that. And it, the cool thing is like, some of these brands are like really hesitant. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm really sure. The amount of small watches we've been selling but by, by by modern standards small You're air quoting. We sell yeah. a lot of, you know, air kings. We sell a lot of date just. I mean, most people don't understand like what what size do you think this six two four zero Paul? Well, is? I think I know the size, right? It's thirty nine or thirty eight point seven or something. It's thirty six. It's no, get the fuck out of here. Is it I really? swear? Yeah. So the mid case of this watch is actually 36. It's the same size as a date just, but the way that everything is executed on this watch makes it wear more like a 40 millimeter. Right. Right. So that's the other thing to consider too, when you're looking at these designs is that like the bezel, the dial layout, the, the length of the hands, the length of the lugs, like the pushers, all that weighs into, you know, this, this design where it's like, they're like right off the bat, like a watch manufacturer today goes, Oh, we're going to make it in 42 millimeter. Okay, great. And then they build this watch around a 42 millimeter case. And then it becomes like a 44 millimeter watch or 45 or whatever. <laughs> and you're like, this, this is just huge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think from, I could be mistaken, but I had heard in the past that most of the size increase over the years was for the Russian market. Um, and then the Asian market, which at the times it was the hottest and like the most profitable for them of, of watches and stuff like that. And so they just kind of kept yeah. like ratcheting upwards. Uh, but that is, that is hearsay. I, I'm not saying that that is the truth, but like, that's what I heard from a, other friends of mine who had been in the industry. So, you know, I think there's validity to that. And, and I think the other thing is that like with these collaborations and all this, all this kind of stuff, <clears throat> I'll take a, a page out of my my Porsche mechanics book. Um, his name is Marco Grace and he owns this company called TLG here in LA. And we actually did an article on Marco and it's on our, on our journal, but Marco's also a watch guy and Marco has some really good taste in watches as he does in kind of like restoring and building these like amazing nine 11s. And the thing that's funny is like Marco comes to me for watch advice. He's like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, don't ever buy that. It's crap. Like you're going to hate it in a week. What was it? And then I'll come to him. What was the one that he said? I think it was probably like, it was like some weird like chronograph or something like that. That was like either paved out or, or something, something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but for, the inverse of that is I'll come to Marco with like Porsche stuff where I'm like, Hey, I'm thinking about like these wheels for this nine 11, or I'm thinking about like the shift knob or these seats. And he's like, dude, don't do that. That's like not OG. You want this or that, the other thing. Right. And his advice is like, don't make it look like a Christmas tree. Cause you see these like enthusiasts that get into this stuff and it's like, well, how can I like add more and <laughs> add more on top of the more? And then, you know, like you go to the car meet or whatever, and you see like this nine 11, it's like, of course it has flares. 
Of course it has this steering wheel. Of course it has these lights and it has a racing stripe and this exhaust. And, and, and then you're like that. It's like, what is missing from this? You literally have taken every element of like every iconic feature and put it all into the one car. And like those iconic features and those like really special details now get lost in it because there's just so much shit bolted onto this car. Right. Oh. And I think the same thing applies to maybe some watch design or designing things in like the modern era where it's like, you know, less is more, right? Some the, Sometimes the reason why these things are so cool and so awesome is like they're very simple and it allows those like little special elements to really like jump off. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, I think a lot of the collabs and a lot of design today is just like, let's bolt on more stuff. Right. Like, let's do this shirt and let's do this like really amazing design and then let's tie dye it. And you're like, <sighs> like, wait, why? It would have been so much cooler if you like got like 75% of the stuff, remove 75% of the stuff and just left that 20 percent there yeah and so i think that you know back to your point i think going smaller with with this stuff doing things that are like like simple um or things that like i I think maybe hopefully some of these brands will pay attention to i mean even like rolex for example it's like not only are you going to flip the entire watch upside down but then you're going to do like this like wild bezel and then you're going to do and it's like just flipping a a watch the the watch upside down would have been enough to like turn the market on, on its ass Right. You could have put a black bezel in there, right? An all black bezel instead of this black and green one. And it would have been rad or just take the normal GMT and do a black and green bezel. The market (laughs) still would have like freaked out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've, I've already seen people trying to sell the black and green bezel. Like, so, so you could put it on your, you know, your right handed or sorry, your, your actual, you know, the, the, the left handed correct model that the right hand one that you wear on your left hand whatever the fuck i'm saying but um you know and then i think someone wanted like eight thousand dollars for this ceramic insert um oh okay which yeah to put like on like a like a like a normal yeah to just put on yeah regular gmt uh which i was just like wow okay i I don't even know how they're getting it because uh it's the the head that part had to get like smuggled out of the geneva but was it in the blister pack and everything it was in yeah yeah it was in like the little um yeah like some sort of like not vacuum sealed but like uh, yeah, yeah, like, like a, a little sealed. like bubble thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Crazy. I, I don't know that someone's got to be sneaking that out. Um, anyway, so this is a series of random questions. I want to kind of yes. go through here, rapid, rapid fire, straight off the dome. If you were making a YouTube how-to video that did not involve watches, what would the subject be? Uh, how to make perfect espresso or latte. Oh, okay. Uh, what's the last movie you saw that you liked? I'm gonna, I'm, I might be like really cliche, but it was Top Gun. Oh yeah, shit. That's a movie that everybody's. There liked. was some like really serious watch spotting in that in that movie yeah. too. So I I was like I I loved it. Like it was so cool. Okay, what's the last thing you bought online? I bought a strap. Okay. Off of eBay. It's a it's a vintage like new old stock strap from 1964 to go on to this watch that I just bought for myself. It's a 1964 Benrus field watch. Oh, like a military I, one? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I got this. I This like came into the shop and I'm like, I bought it for myself. And this strap just doesn't fit the right way. And it's not the original. So I bought a, a strap off of eBay for this watch in particular. Ah, okay. Um, what is a movie or a book that when someone mentions you feel they understand you? Or an um, album? Or an album? Yeah. Oh, I probably say like any chet baker album if they know about like chet i'm like oh you, this is like my 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 homie drug addict guy really funny, funny <laughs> shooting heroin into your foot <laughs> wasn't that chet baker i mean he was a genius uh, they were all they were what's wild is like all the jazz musicians out of like the 50s and the 60s were like crazy heroin addicts yeah and i like never knew that until i started getting into jazz and i'm like why are all these guys like heroin addicts you know it's like <laughs> Wild. What's your problem, man? <laughs> yeah, it's like Art Pepper, Miles Davis, Chet. Yeah. What's funny though is I um had a meeting with Wes Lang, who is an amazing artist, and he's also an amazing watch collector. Yeah. And I walked into a stu- into a studio in like in the corner on the floor of like this massive warehouse where he does his paintings. He has the Chet Baker album like alone together that was on the floor, and I was like, okay, this guy knows what's up. Oh damn, that's a pretty emotional, like really detailed record. So yeah, what is a watch brand or specific reference or whatever that you're seeing right now that really excites you? Like something that's like getting popularity uh, that maybe hadn't had it in the past. Um, I would say 
Nevada Gretchen, both on the vintage side and on the modern side. It's a brand that I'm, I, I like, I really like. I think that their designs and what they were doing, um, back in the sixties and into the seventies was like really cool and interesting mm-hmm. and not too far off of like the course, you know, for what I would look for and kind of like a, a watch to wear. The modern reissues that they are producing in Switzerland are just so awesome. Mm. It literally is the perfect blend of homage meeting like modern functionality, sapphire crystals, up, updated materials, upgraded movements, while not straying away too far from the classics. And I think that's really cool. So Novata Grenchen, I think, is a brand that I would recommend people look at, um, both on the vintage side and on the modern side. And also, the cool thing is the price point is pretty consumable. You get a lot of value. Uh, that's another thing for me, too, is like some, I, I can't get over people paying what they're paying for in this modern market with modern Rolex. It's ridiculous to me. Where Do you think you it's going to cool some... down? Like, it's cooled down a tiny bit, but like... Yeah. Yes. I think what what... And the simple, my, this is my take on it. You had a lot of Fairweather fans that were buying modern watches because they thought that they would make a good investment. And what ended up happening is you had suppliers purposefully, um, I think, limit the amount of release to increase demand. But you had a lot of people that were buying watches because they weren't really watch people. They weren't wearing the watches and Mm -hmm. they were just kind of keeping these watches in their boxes and not taking the stickers off and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that that um, is inevitably going to come down because as soon as there's any kind of like market fluctuation, Mm -hmm. the first thing that moves is those assets. And so if they're true collectors and they have a true enthusiasm behind what it is that they're buying, it wouldn't be the the thing that they're that they're going to sell. It's like if you wanted to buy, you know, a Rolex Paul Newman Daytona at any, you know, part of the market, right? If good, bad or whatever, it's going to be a challenge to do, right? Or a good sub or a good date just or whatever. And there is an emotional connection to those items, which limits their amount of turnover in in the market paired with a limited amount of supply to begin with. It's a much more stable market versus modern production meeting hype, meeting people that are not buying these things from an enthusiast-based perspective. I think that that's going to level the market for sure and bring it down. Oh, damn, that's a very thorough answer. Um, I've thought a lot about this. Yeah, (laughs) as you should. I'm also asked a lot by my clients, like, hey, what do you think of the modern market? How do you think the modern market is going to compare to the vintage market? And I don't think that like what I'm advising or saying is, is, is rocket science. It's right. not, it's not like, it's not like I've got some like hidden agenda somewhere where I'm like, these are the watches you're going to buy. Like, I, I think the economics behind it are very simple, but I think the thing that really resonates with me and, and the, and the truth is that, you know, again, if I had a modern Porsche 911 that I could go out and buy at any single time because they're in production or whatever. I'm of course going to let that go versus like my, you know, 75 or my 82 or whatever, where it's going to be really hard for me to find another one. I'm going to have an emotional connection to that. I'm not going to flip that back into the market if things kind of get unstable. And I think the same thing can be said for the, for the modern watch market for sure. Yeah, that's very very true. Uh, Okay. To jump back to rapid fire stuff. Um, Three watch collection. Uh, do I have a price point? Uh, no, three watch three watch collection that that you think that somebody could have obtained one day. You know, if if it is like a Paul Newman Daytona, a Millsub, and a you know Stella Dial Day yeah. Date, m- maybe not. <laughs> okay. Um. So I would break that down into three categories. I would say a daily okay. driver watch, a sports watch, and then a okay. dress watch. So for the daily driver, I would probably say any Rolex. Date just. Um, I really like the four digit date just, like the 1601s or the 1603s. Um, I would say chef's choice on whatever you wanted to do from a from a material perspective. I think it could be steel, it could be two-tone, it could be gold if you wanted to. That's the beauty of a date just. The most iconic uh Rolex design ever produced. They're just as in style today as they were, you know, when they they released right. the date just so it's an icon in itself and i think the cool thing about a date just is you could wear it with anything you know steel date just on jubilee you could wear it with a suit you could wear it with shorts you could wear it casual formal whatever so i would recommend first watch would be rolex date just um for a sport watch i would say you know maybe like a seiko or a tudor so a seiko turtle um, whether it's vintage or modern, I think I, I'm really a big fan of Seiko. I know that you and I like connect on oh, Seiko yeah. stuff a lot, but I think that like the brand is really cool. 
everything they do is in-house. You know, they make their own luminous material. They make their own crystals. They're making their own movements. Like that to me is a sign of a, of, of a good manufacturer when they're producing all that stuff in-house and the price right. points there. So I think the, uh, like a vintage Seiko dive watch of some kind, or maybe even like a Seiko chronograph could be, could be fun. And then for a dress watch, um, depending on your price point, I think that, you know, something thin time only maybe, or time and date, something maybe in, in gold, it doesn't have to be gold, but maybe something on the thinner side, like an Omega, um, you know, like Seamaster dress watch or a Cartier. There's some really awesome Cartiers. Like you can get a steel Cartier or you could get a gold Cartier. You could get a black Cartier or mm-hmm. painted Cartier. Um, that would be nice. I think that that design is just really elegant and timeless and handsome. And that would make for a good dress watch. And also one that provides like um, flexibility in its wearability. Um, look at that flexibility. In its wearability. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, something that like you could wear like, as like a formal type of watch, but also something that would give you flexibility to wear it in maybe a more casual setting. And I think that that's like the, the, the thing that the tank provides. It's such an iconic design. It's elegant and it's classy, but it's also functional. So Rolex Datejust um, would be my top pick. Seiko Diver or Chronograph would be my second watch. And then I would say uh, Cartier Tank in any of the ma- materials for like a dress watch would be my top three. Is there a watch right now that you think is overrated? Like everybody's like, come on, like stop with that. Like for me, I'll, I'll go off. Like I think when someone walks in and they have a 5711, they have a Nautilus and you're like, oh boy. Yeah, I would say, I would agree with you. I would say like a 5711 or... <sighs> you know like maybe like like an ap i think that those are kind of like a a royal oak those are kind of a bit hyped out the thing that i'm finding is that either people are kind of like can i use the word fuck boy yeah yeah (laughs) there's a few there's definitely fuck boys and watches they got the off-white shoes and the 5711 on their wrist yeah yeah and they're in line at maru (laughs) like there you go yeah and you're like oh man like if you just had one of these things like like going back to the christmas tree theory it's like you just had one thing that thing would be like really cool and be like oh those are dope shoes or oh that's a dope watch but you've got like you kind of have like checked all the fuck boy boxes where i'm like yep yeah yeah you like you so um i would say uh, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd kind of agree with you that that that's like kind of an overplayed watch but i'll tell you that there are true collectors that sure. have like 57 11s or those kinds of things that that i think appreciate them for what they are generally speaking those guys have not bought them at one hundred and forty thousand. they were just kind of like you know they either bought them through an ad or or whatever and that kind of makes me happy because i i like seeing watches in the wild like that but but yeah i, I yeah i know a guy he his dad got a nautilus like way back in the day and they gave him a discount on it because no one wanted to buy it because at the time people were were looking for like things like the 3940 and like the higher complicated you know dress watches of patek so he has a yeah it's like a tiffany stamped nautilus that he got i think for like sixteen thousand dollars or something like that at one point i mean it's crazy and like he and he's wearing no he wears a (laughs) g-shock okay <laughs> he's like i'm not wearing this he's like it's it's you know because someone told him like what they're worth now and now he's like i don't want to be seen wearing that and so he just i think g-shock g-shock is cool. <laughs> you know the navy seals wear them so like why why not like yeah I, oh i'm all in on g-shocks i tend not to wear them that much because they're so big even this like yeah. omega swatch the moon swatch i put it on my wrist and i'm like yeah, it's still a little big like yeah. Eh. yeah okay fascinating well cam thank you so much it was good having you i'll see you yeah thanks for having me really appreciate it all right